0: Well, we are drawing quickly to a close with Jonah. Father, help me today, I pray, through Christ. Amen. I want to ask a question that I know you know the answer to. Are you familiar with that thing that happens almost universally when a child does not get his or her way? What do they do? They pout. And while it is possible, in fact, there are a whole lot of cute videos online of children pouting and pictures of children pouting. And while it may be charming and cute to see a child uh, when it's your child and it goes too long, it's not so cute anymore, but it's really not cute, is it, when it's grown-ups pouting. After all, grown-ups... Are supposed to be grown ups, right? So we, you know, we should, as Paul puts it in First Corinthians 13, when we were a child, we acted like a child, but now it's time to put away childish things. But do you know what's even worse than just the ordinary run of the meal uh, adult who's pouting because they didn't get their way? The prophet of God pouting before the Lord. A man called by God. A man who had just repented from running away from God. We now find him pouting. And that's exactly what happens from our text in the book of Jonah this morning. A couple of weeks ago I shared with you that the second chapter of the book of Jonah is the happiest chapter in the entire book. I regret to tell you that chapter 4 that we will begin today is the ugliest chapter in the book. Uh It's a powerful statement, and I will share with you what I, I shared with my brother Dave uh, before service. And I hope you will understand and be saying some prayers for me throughout this. I have never not wanted to preach a message the Lord gave me as much as I do not want to preach this. But when he led me to the book of Jonah, I knew we would come here. And Jeremiah once expressed to God, I don't want to do this anymore. But there's a fire in my bones and I have to. So folks, there's a little bit of fire in Danny today. And I will tell you, this passage hurts. Just to read what happens, hurts. So we're going to take a look at Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, and I'd ask you to stand. I will be reading from the Legacy Standard Bible this morning, and I will let you know why in just a couple of minutes. But let us listen to the Word of God with our hearts, as well as our ears. But this was a great evil to Jonah. And he became angry. And he prayed to Yahweh and said. Ah O oh Yahweh was not this my word to myself. While I still was in my own land. Therefore I went ahead to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. Slow to anger and abundant and loving kindness and one who relents concerning evil. So now, O Yahweh, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. And Yahweh said, Do you have a good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of the city, and there he made a booth for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see What would happen in the city? God bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated. Very simply put, in our text this morning, Jonah was angry with Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, the one before whom he repented. And now he's showing a very disturbing trend in his life. Jonah in chapter 4 is essentially reverting back to Jonah in chapter 1. And it's almost as if the repentance never happened. It's almost as if he never made the promise to God, I'll do what you want me to do. Now he's angry. And it's easy to come down hard on Jonah for his anger. But he is far from the only person of faith who has pouted before the Lord my friends, we need to be extremely careful when we come to a place of saying, God, I don't think you're doing this right. God, I'm not happy with what you're doing. Now, how is it possible that a child of God, someone who has truly been born again, someone who has truly trusted in the Lord, how is it possible for us to, then at some point in our lives to take on this rebellious character of Jonah. Well, we're going to take a look at reasons that it's possible for you and for me to fall into this ugly trap that Jonah now finds himself in. And so I need you again to listen very carefully with your hearts, with your minds. You know that old expression in one ear out the other? Let's make sure it at least gets in one ear today. So let us hear. You see what can happen that leads us to a place of arrogance and anger? We can allow our emotions to overrule God's truth. Now I want to explain that a moment. When I say we can allow our emotions to overrule God's truth, I'm not saying... That our emotions, our anger, our displeasure with God somehow makes His truth no longer the truth. Sometimes our emotions can be so overwhelming, they overpower our ability to hear God and His truth and what He wants for us. They become so powerful, we cannot bring ourselves to see what God is doing and we struggle. And what you need to see today, Jonah actually thought what God was doing was evil. How do you like that? I read from the Legacy Standard Bible today because it picks out a very important point, an idea found in the text that most translations just don't focus upon. Uh, Let me read for you a couple of other translations uh, and, and see the way they handle it. From the New International Version, which I normally read from. Now, Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. King James Version. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. The English Standard Version. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. The New American Standard Bible But it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. You follow that trail, it displeased Jonah. Now the message, and Peterson does his own thing, uh, Jonah was furious, he lost his temper. Now none of those translations are wrong. They're tending to focus on the idea that Jonah is angry with God. And indeed, he was. There's no doubt about that. Jonah was angry with God because God was forgiving the Ninevites. Now, the legacy standard picks up on something because the word translated displeased in the Hebrew text is the word ra'ah. And it carries with it the idea of evil. It carries with it the result of evil, the feeling of misery, the feeling of distress, and so on. Dr. Billy K. Smith has pointed out a literal translation of verse 1 could be, it was evil to Jonah with great evil. In other words, Jonah's anger is incited against the Lord and he is repudiating the goodness of God. He is challenging God's goodness here because God was going to forgive the Ninevites and Jonah absolutely hated what God was doing. Now, why? We're not really certain. But several suggestions have been made. Perhaps he made it, maybe he felt like it made him look like a false prophet. After all, he said, 40 days and you're going to be judged, and now they're not going to be judged. John Calvin, the Protestant reformer, said, Jonah was angry because he was unwilling to be a vain and lying prophet. He didn't want anybody to say he was a false prophet. Possibly Jonah was angry because he knew about Amos and Hosea, contemporary prophets in Israel, who had already prophesied that one day God would use Assyria to destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. Jonah's kingdom. In which he lived. And so Jonah may be angry because now, God, you're causing me to enable one of our worst enemies in the future to destroy the kingdom of Israel. Quite possibly, Jonah, it's been suggested, was hoping God would really judge Nineveh harshly so that when he goes back to Israel to preach to Israel... He can say, now, this is what's going to happen if you don't straighten up. They will become an object lesson. And what we know for sure is that God's grace becomes a matter of sheer anger for Jonah. Right at this moment, the prophet Jonah, who had repented, And did do what he said he would do. He did preach to Nineveh. Is now standing if you would. In a great canyon. That is separating himself. From his God. From being the man God has called him to be. To share in what God is doing. And Yahweh asks. It's kind of the question. Like he asked Adam. Adam where are you? He's asking Jonah a question to make Jonah think. Yahweh asks, do you have a good reason to be angry? Have you ever had somebody ignore you, so blatantly ignore you that it was just rude and outright terrible? Do you notice? Jonah ignores the Lord. He refuses to answer God. Now God will ask the question again. And at that time Jonah will finally give his answer. But at this moment he doesn't even bother. He just heads east out of town. Now why do I say this is painful? Well the reality is folks. There are times when what we really want. Clashes with God's purpose. There are times in our lives. What we want goes directly opposed to what the Word of God says. For instance, we look at the people in our lives who have hurt us. What do we want to do? We want to hurt them back, don't we? But God's Word says, don't repay evil for evil. Vengeance is mine, let me handle it. But oh, we want to strike back. We look at people in the world who are mocking us for our faith. And there's part of us, a little tiny part maybe, but there's part of us that all of a sudden can really relate to James and John when they wanted to call fire down from heaven on the village that rejected Jesus. We want God to deal with those mockers and scoffers. And so instead of engaging in a, and a trying to engage in a conversation by which we show love and compassion for somebody who feels very different than we, we throw back mocking words to them. Folks, there are times the old man in us raises his ugly head. And we look at people, We are just not happy with the God of grace. If there is such a time in our lives, at such a time, we must learn to submit to our Lord in trust. When I feel that anger rising up because I see the unrighteousness and injustice in this world, when I, I see everything going on and I want God... To do something about it, and I'm getting angry. I, I, I'm praying, and I, and I just want to strike out. I've got to ask myself Is what I want important enough to move me out of the will of my Father? Is what I want important enough? To cause a breach in my relationship with the God who loves me and who saved me and showed me grace. Because I want what I want and I want it now. Well, prayerfully, prayerfully we come to a place of understanding that our God is infinitely wiser than we are. And if God truly is infinitely wiser than we are, shouldn't His purpose become our purpose? Shouldn't God's will become our will? We pray the Lord's prayer. And it opens up. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And anytime you pray that prayer, read that prayer, understand when you say your will be done on earth, you're saying, Lord, your will be done in me. And when what I want. May not line up. We need to learn Jesus prayer. In the garden of Gethsemane, when he asked his father, if there is any way for this cup to be removed from me? In other words, if there's any way for us to save this world without that crucifixion, can you take it away? And then he prayed, yet not as I will, but as you will. If I allow my emotion and what I want to drive me farther from God, that I, I, I crucially need to be, we can find ourselves slipping into the next reason for pouting very easily. We can find ourselves at God's, at odds with God's choice to forgive. And this is tough. And this is where it comes too close to home in many ways. When you see Jonah and you hear what he says to God, Jonah actually found the compassion and grace of God to be a bad thing. Do you understand that Jonah's rebuking the Lord right now? He admitted, this is the reason I left for Tarshish. When he says, this is what I said, and Lexham understands that I said to myself, Jonah is actually knowing, and you know what was in my heart. You know why I ran. I left because I knew you would be kind. I left because I knew you would be gracious. I left because I knew you were going to spare them. And the Ninevites deserve to be judged. essentially, Jonah is telling God Almighty, I told you so. I told you so. And Jonah knew about the truth of God's goodness and loving kindness. He had experienced it, hadn't he? When he is under discipline of the Lord, he he prays and he is so happy for the loving kindness of God. That's That's a beautiful word. It's, Chesed, and it's so important in the Old Testament. But in this context, Jonah could not stomach the idea of God's goodness. What you may not know is he virtually quotes Exodus thirty four six in this text. And in that passage of Scripture, it's when God passes before Jonah, Jonah is not quoting Moses. Jonah is quoting God. For it is God who says in Exodus 34 6, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. And the words in that text point to attributes of God, descriptive of God. He is gracious. And the idea that God is grace means that God has an attitude toward those who are in de- undeserving of love. It expresses goodness, benevolence in, in an ultimate kind of sense. And then we're told God is compassionate. And this is a word translated in many ways, and it can mean loving or merciful. It is also used in the Hebrew language to express the understanding and love that a mother has for her child. God is also described slow to anger. And I love this folks. Means He's slow to snort. That, that huffiness that happens when we're angry. He's slow to anger and it talks about his patience. The long suffering of God. And the Ninevites were obvious recipients of this characteristic. God was going to show patience to them. And then he is abounding in love. And here is our word, chesed. The word refers to the covenant love of God and it's an attribute that expresses itself in the redemption of sin. God reaching out. It encompasses all the other qualities, kindness, loyalty, unfailing love. And and Dr. Smith has pointed out No one term in English adequately and accurately expresses the meaning of chesed. But Jonah knew what it meant because he had experienced it. And at that moment in time, he took these beautiful descriptive words for God and used them in a tirade against Yahweh. I knew you would be like that. The loving kindness that he prays in Jonah 2 8, he is now letting that become his reason for fury. Simply put, because God has decided to show loving kindness to one of Israel's enemies. And Jonah cannot handle it. Again. It's very easy to pick on Jonah. He's an easy target here. But the reality is God's grace given to the undeserving has sometimes upset believers. Sometimes we have rebelled. And not just us. This is, this is true. Go back to the New Testament. and When Saul of Tarsus got converted, what did the church want to do with him? Nothing. They didn't want it. They didn't trust him. They believed it was a trick. They weren't ready to receive him. No, we don't want you. And then Barnabas comes along, the son of consolation, the the guy who's always bringing and standing up for somebody. And finally, they say, "Okay, we're going to give him a chance." And you kind of get the idea: we're going to give him a chance, Barnabas. But if you're wrong, in the twentieth century, there are plenty of you who are old enough to remember. Manuel Noriega. He was the violent dictator of Panama. One time friend of the United States, he allowed drug cartels to come and operate in his country. He was a nominal Catholic by birth. As an adult, he he dabbled in the occult. He was captured by America and brought to America to face charges, which was a very unusual thing and caused quite a bit of an upstir in the world. But what you may not remember, awaiting his trial, Manuel Noriega, a man who was responsible for death, for drugs, for harshness. Manuel Noriega was led to faith by two evangelical ministers, Cliff Brannon and Rudy Hernandez. It began by Brandon sending Noriega a Bible, he felt convicted by God to do so. And then they began a series of talks. And Hernandez was brought in so he could translate for brandon And after a three-hour discussion one day, Manuel Noriega surrendered his life to Christ. Now pretty much everybody involved was willing to say, this conversion should have no bearing on his trial. He still needs to answer for the crimes he is is accused of committing. It needs to be adjudicated. But Brandon and Hernandez, afraid that they might not be able to follow through after a verdict is rendered and after Noriega is taken away to prison, petitioned the judge in the trial and asked, could Noriega be baptized in the courtroom? And in an incredibly surprising decision, the judge said yes. And they brought a portable baptistry into the courtroom and Manuel Noriega was baptized. The New York Times did a story on it confirming all of this information. That Noriega had made a profession of faith. The thing about it is, Most of the world did not believe it, including many Christians. A man that evil could not possibly be saved. Let's bring it closer to home. What about people on the coast who've been involved in drive-by shootings? A horrible, evil act. Is it possible that God could forgive them? Very possible the families will never. But could God actually forgive that? What about drug dealers? I met two men during a time I was doing a Bible study at a federal penitentiary in Texarkana. Mike and Glenn and they shared their testimony with me. And these two men, folks, I, I'm, I've done jail ministry enough. I know, what, I know about jailhouse conversions where people are trying to get time off. These two men were drug dealers. One on the high end of the spectrum, one a street dealer. And their testimony was essentially the same. They both shared with me That they would never have come to Christ if they had not been caught and lost everything. And if Glenn or Mike were to walk into this congregation today, I would throw my arms around them and tell them, brothers, it's been a long time. I believe their conversion as much as any I've ever heard. Well, what about those involved in human trafficking? Surely God couldn't forgive that. And whatever field of the spectrum you are politically, what about the politicians that make your blood boil every time they open their mouths? Could they actually be saved? And those who are getting out of jail, some of you do jail ministry those who have done their time, they've they've finished their sins, they've come to faith in Christ. How many of them come to churches and are very quickly said, you're not welcome here? The list could go on and on because there are just so many evil people. There are just so many sinners in this world, aren't they? And shouldn't God give them what they deserve? There may well be a time, folks, when we would side with Jonah. There may be a time in our lives when we would side with the Pharisees who got mad at Jesus because he hung around tax collectors and sinners and was letting these horrible, wicked people have hope they could come into the kingdom of God. Well, if there is ever such a time in our lives, at such a time, we must remember that we are all undeserving. Every single one of us. The Apostle Paul declared in Romans 3.23, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every person in this room, including myself, at one time was at war with our Creator. We are at enmity with God. And God reached into our lives. And the gospel took root in our hearts. And we became children of the living God. We have received grace. Which we did not deserve. So let's be careful. That we do not exclude the possibility. That God is still in the business of saving tax collectors and sinners. He can still reach into the very dregs of society and bring somebody up from the dirt, from the gutter and turn them into a powerful witness for God. We need to understand that. And we need to believe it and we need to submit to it. Because if we don't. If we allow our emotions when we don't like the way God's handling this world If we allow ourselves to start thinking about, well, this person, they they should be forgiven. They're not too bad. But this guy, no. If we're not careful, we fall into the last part of the trap with Jonah. We can give ourselves over to the hope that God will do the right thing. And please notice the quotation marks, and I hope you catch the significance. We want God to do the right thing, and at that moment in time, we're the ones who are telling Him what the right thing is, aren't we? You see, Jonah, this man of God, this prophet of the Lord, Jonah watched to see if God might still give the Ninevites what they deserved. He he told God. Why don't you just kill me? When God asked him, you why don't you just kill me? You've shown mercy, you've shown grace, just, just kill me right now. There's one other prophet in the word of God who prayed, Lord, just take me now, kill me. And it was Elijah. But in Elijah's case, he's in the desert and he's overburdened with the unfaithfulness of the people of Israel and the king and queen who sit on the throne who are going to continue to lead Israel against God. Jonah wants to die because he just doesn't want to see what what God's going to do. But what he does, he leaves the city and apparently sets himself on a hill where he could overlook. He builds a makeshift shelter of branches and leaves and waited. And the text tells us he waited to see what was going to happen to the city. Now Jonah already knew what was happening at that moment. God was forgiving them. He knew that, right? God was not going to judge Nineveh. Well, we know 150 years later, he does. Because through the generations, the Ninevites eventually came back to their old ways. But Jonah knew God is not going to judge these Ninevites. And in his mind, forgiving a pagan evil people was wrong. Daniel Block puts it as bluntly as you possibly can. Jonah had tried to stop God from doing the wrong thing. By running away, by refusing to preach, Jonah tried to stop God from forgiving Nineveh. And he failed. So now what is he hoping for? I have one guy that wanted to make Jonah, clean Jonah up a little bit. Make this not as difficult a passage to look at. He says, well... Well, the normal way to look at it is this, but maybe Jonah was sitting up there waiting to see what God would do with human nature and how he would redeem them and and as though Jonah is waiting to see and understand the grace of God. That's not the way the text reads. I believe he wanted Nineveh to fail in their repentance. I think he was waiting. We don't know how long he waited. If he waited the whole 40 days, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But he's waiting to see, yeah, I know that king and I know these people and they're not going to be able to keep this up. They're going to to turn back to what they were. They're going to go back to their violence. They're going to go back to their evil. I know this is going to happen and I don't want to miss it when God rains fire and brimstone down on Nineveh like he did Sodom and Gomorrah. Lloyd John Ogilvy just says, we ought to look at the contrast. A sulking prophet under a leafy booth and the king in the city fasting in sackcloth and ashes. And what we see is Jonah hoping the repentance fails. Some of you have been hearing about the Asbury movement that's going on now in the university and and um, a lot of different are rea- people are reacting differently. And there are those, like myself, who are praying, Lord, let this be, that hint of the great awakening. Dave shared with me that there are stories popping up in other uh, colleges and universities as well. But there are those who have gone online very quickly and just dismissed the whole thing and said, oh, it's not real. It's not going to last. Folks. I look at Jonah, and I can see all too quickly what can happen in our lives. Because believers have sometimes found themselves praying words of hate. And I'm not going to tell you this without admitting there have been times in my walk with the Lord, I have been guilty of the same thing. There were times in my life as a a young minister that I knew who needed what. In biblical studies, they're called them precatory prayers. You can find them throughout the book of Psalms, Psalm 137. Blessed is he who taketh your little children and dasheth them against the stones. I sat in a church, and some of you have heard me talk about this. I went to a revival I was invited to by a young a young man that I once caught shoplifting in our store, and he'd gotten saved and, and wanted me to come to the revival and i 'm sitting in the congregation i 'm nineteen years old, and the evangelist is going to town and, and it was a very boisterous congregation uh, they were Pentecostal in nature, and they were loud and and uh, there was there was no lack of amens in that church and The man preached and he declared. That we, the church in America, needs to pray that God strikes Madeline Murray O'Hare dead. Madeline Murray O'Hare was probably the best known atheist of the early 60s. There were rumors about her going on forever about all different things she was trying. When he said, we need to pray that God strike Madeline Murray O'Hare dead, that congregation screamed out amens and yes lords!" and I'm 19 years old and I'm shocked at what I'm seeing and I'm thinking shouldn't we pray God saves her would that not be the better testimony if he turned her heart then you have the professing Christians of Westboro Baptist Church in Kentucky Primitive Baptist Church. Basically, is made up of extended family now. They made a name for themselves with their rather vile form of protesting. Basically, they protest anybody who disagrees with them. But their signs are full of gutter language and just all sorts of hatefulness. First time I ever heard about the pastor at the time, Fred Phelps, he was on a talk show and they showed a A video clip of him and his two little boys, one eight, I think the other was about ten, standing on street corners, screaming at people, spittle coming out of their mouth, you're going to hell. They weren't telling these people anything about how to avoid it. They weren't telling them how to come to faith. You're just going to hell. He was once asked, why do you preach hate? Because the Bible preaches hate. Well, this church gained national notoriety by protesting at the funerals of soldiers Who were killed in the Gulf War. Servicemen and women who died. In the Gulf Wars. Their signs would say. Praise God for dead soldiers. And they encouraged Christians throughout this nation. Pray for more dead soldiers. Because God hates America. And is judging America for her sins. By the death of these young men and women. And I have known people who have been praying, Jesus, come quickly. And I'm pretty sure most of us have prayed that at some point. Even so, come quickly, Lord. But I have some tell, told me part of the reason they want Jesus to come quickly is they want those sinners to be judged. Do the right thing, Jesus. Come back and burn Him. Perhaps we've forgotten what Peter Wrote when he addressed those who mocked because Christ had not already returned. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, the Lord is not slow about his promise as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The reason God is holding back the second coming, he wants the kingdom of God to be populated with many and many and thousand untold numbers of people who have come to faith. And he's giving them a chance. Now I accept the truth that there is a judgment time that will one day come. And folks, I will remind you it's not just the lost people who stand before Christ. We are told in the word of God that our works will be judged to see whether or not they were real or not. I believe there will be a judgment. But I believe with everything in my heart Whenever Jesus talked about hell, there was not a smile on his lips. I think there was probably a tear in his eye. Because when Jesus talks about hell, he is talking almost always to disciples. And why would he do that? To underscore the reason that you need to be my witnesses. we find ourselves praying god do the right thing you you blast those sinners remember right after hurricane katrina all the number god's judging new orleans and all the sinful places in new orleans didn't get touched it was the Ninth Ward, a place where people couldn't afford to rebuild. They got hit the hardest. And I wanted to ask, well, is God's aim off? There are actually people on Bourbon Street with signs in the windows, we will not die sober, almost challenging God. So if there is a time in our lives when we have allowed emotion to overrule what we know to be God's truth when we have begun to decide this person needs saved, that person needs judgment, and God, you need to do it now. At such a time, we must remember that hate is no longer our right. I understand that it's easy to be angry at this world. And I understand if there are not times you are angry... There's something wrong with you. We should be angry at the injustice, at the crime, at the sheer lack of love and compassion, at the evil people do to one another. But the Apostle Paul told the Ephesians, be angry and sin not. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Don't give a foothold to the devil. And he said, do not let it stew in you and brew in you to the point where the anger overtakes you And the enemy slips in to mislead you. The day I gave my life to Christ. As an eight year old I didn't understand this. It actually took me a while to understand it. When I gave up my life into the hands of Christ. I gave up my right to hate. Jesus. Luke 6, 27 and 28, I don't know how to put it any plainer. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who disparage you. And I believe with all my heart when Jesus said pray for the people who are mistreating you, he was not saying pray, God, get them. Paul Tan has written, Some diseases are incurable. But not because there are no drugs or other forms of treatment to stop their course. Some diseases are incurable because the patient refuses to get cured. Paul and Lisa could probably talk about that a little bit. And he says the bane of physicians, a big group of people who come under the category of uncooperative patients. The doctor very painstakingly outlines this is the program of treatment that we're going to go through. Gives details what medicines are to be taken, how much, a list of permitted foods, graduated exercises, a kind of baths that might be taken, and all of that labor trying to help this person come to help flies out the window because the patient merely goes on eating what it pleases and taking her medications when and if she remembers. And then he says, on the other scale, there are those, and he calls them extraordinary individuals, who improve on the doctor's advice. If the doctor tells him to take one capsule of his medicine a day, he takes three. Because if one capsule is good for me, Three capsules should be three times as good. And I shall get, well, three times faster. Folks, let us not be uncooperative patients in the hands of the healer of souls. Let us commit to not let our emotions move us away from God's will. To seek to decide who should be given And admit, that's not our job, God. Let's commit to not pray for God to destroy those we deem worthy of destruction. Folks, let's commit today that we will not be found pouting before our Lord. So I'm asking you, today, would you commit with me To to surrender our rebellious side to God. God who loved and saved us. God who showed us grace and mercy. Will you pray, Lord, bring sinners into the family of God. Will you pray with me today? Not what I will, but what you will, Father.